Hello and welcome. This is uh, We Talk As One. My name is Marcus Barnes and this is the first ever Thought Leadership series from Defected Records and it's my privilege to have your attention, attention at a time when we think conversation within this community about our culture has never been so important. We Talk As One is bringing together 20 leaders from the music industry and beyond to give their time and brilliant minds on a variety of subjects in and around the state of dance music culture, promotion and nightlife since the pandemic. Our aim is to come up with progressive, practical and hope-filled thinking, a chance to elevate issues, but also attack the problems as we see them. We're running a series of four panels from now until the 18th of December. So today our round table is a very special one, uh, one that I actually feel quite passionate about myself and I'm sure everyone watching will feel equally as passionate. We've got an amazing lineup for you and we're gonna be chatting about um, some interesting stuff over the next 45 minutes. Um, the topic is where we are and where we're going to, uh, taking stock of the current status of the music industry from neglects by the UK government, causing mass redundancy and personal loss, to later interventions, sporadic funding and the resultant fallout. And I'm sure lots of other stuff will come up during the chat as well. Uh, I've got Dan Chalmers, director of YouTube Music, Ella McWilliam, co-founder of Full Fat PR, Maria May, senior agent at CAA, Michael Kill, CEO at Nighttime Industries Association, and Sasha Lords, Nighttime Economy Advisor for Greater Manchester. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to chat to me and um, have this discussion. It's a very important one, and um, I'm sure you guys all have a lot to say on the issue, which we probably won't be able to squeeze into the, <laughs> the time that we have, but let's give it a go. Um, Maria, I wanted to start with you. Um, from a talent perspective, um, there's been a lot of concern, obviously, about the future and how, um, how it's looking for everybody. From an artist's point of view, um, you know, are artists kind of um, adapting well to the situation? Are you finding that there's, um, you know, a lot of difficulty that they're going through? What are some of the difficulties that they're facing and, and how are you kind of coping with it all at the moment? Well, I mean... <sighs> Obviously, it's been a very funny year for everybody, and I do worry about the mental health of a lot of people, especially those artists that are, you know, struggling financially. I mean, you know, headliners probably can weather such a cataclysmic loss of touring income and focus on being on in the studio, being creative, releasing music. And I suppose this year's been a really welcome break off from the relentless touring schedules that they were used to. But I'm aware a lot of mid-tier emerging artists have really been hard hit by loss of income, um, which they were so reliant on. And we shouldn't forget the ecosystem, which touring and the business supports, for, you know, from the cloakroom attendant right up to the security guard, the admin staff, not forgetting the wonderful and amazing production crews that exist around the festival live business. And they've been completely and utterly left without any support since March. And I think for those of us that, you know, um, are on furlough or, you know, you know, on massive pay reductions from their companies, we're still being paid. And I just think for a lot of that's very difficult for some people in our business to understand. And ultimately, we're all having to make dramatic adjustments to our business. And ultimately, massive redundancies are going on across the music industry yeah. right now. And I really think it's going to take at least two summers to get back to where we are, where we were. And I really worry about how we're going to break new talent when all the lineups from 2020 have been moved into 2021. Exactly. 
And I can't help feeling that the talent which will suffer the most will be the middle and lower tier artists, the ones, the emerging acts where they see their fees driven down by promoters who are trying to make their money back. And the demand for slots is going to be so high that some artists are just going to be forced to accept what's available. So a bit like society, the Mm. top tier will weather this storm, but everyone is severely affected by the situation in some um, way. Have you noticed noticed many of your artists um, being that kind of outspoken about their situation and and how they're sort of thinking and feeling about everything or a lot of people kind of being worried that it's maybe too political or divisive? Yeah, well, I think when it became clear that the situation was not going to right itself as fast as people hoped, it would have Mm. been really nice to see a lot more artists, managers and agents coming together to work out how we could lobby government for more support and get more active in social media about all the campaigns that were being put together. And I personally um, have been quite shocked by the apathy which exists in our community and how the response consistently for a while was, I'm not political. And when we did start asking for more support to engage fans, you know, it was a very lacklustre response initially. And, Mm. you know, ultimately people power is what we needed to engage our audience because we have a government at the moment which is reactive and they react to social media pressure. And considering how good our scene is at promoting itself, it's a shame that more artists, managers, and I have to say, I'm shocked to say, the majority of agents didn't step up initially and consider what they could do to help. And as far as I'm concerned, this really separated the wheat from the chaff and has really shown who cares about our scene and saving it from collapse. And those who are just sitting back and waiting for it to come back and then intend to start making money again. Yeah, I'd, I, what, I found that quite difficult myself because um, it seems like any time anyone's been quite outspoken about it, there's been a, a sort of hailstorm of abuse and comments saying, oh, you're selfish. Why don't you care about, like, you know, vulnerable people? You just want to get, you, you want to party and, like, you know, you don't care about anyone else. You don't care about spreading the virus around. And, and there seems to be people just butting heads over, over this yeah, like, well, same we, issue over and over. We've seen this on um, all sorts of issues. But, uh, you know, we, as a business, we've been going now, I'd say, 30 years is a fair thing. We have literally mm. ran the safest events because we had to, because otherwise we would never get licensed or run. And so we're never going to go back unless it's safe. We're not. We get, we're all. We're such a tenacious bunch of people that we're always going to go back when it's safe. Mm. But you know, simply posting some of the campaigns would have been enough. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of people who've engaged and stepped up and got involved and defected have done a great job. Mm. It took a while and a lot of behind the scenes lobbying to get this moving. And now there is a group of artists and managers and promoters who are actively engaged in working to help as much as they can to work out how we can support and assist and be vocal about how mm. badly we've been let down by the government in terms of funding and support. It's become apparent that the government have no knowledge about the electronic scene. So one of the things me and a number of other people are working on behind the scenes is to start working to be more engaged and lobby government for more recognition of our scene and what it brings to the UK culturally and financially so that we are given a bit more respect. But also, you know, I've heard, I've been talking to a lot of promoters and some, a lot of promoters haven't even heard from a lot of the major players in this business over this nine month period. And certainly there's a lot of promoters feel they haven't even been contacted by the acts, you know, the acts that they've supported for so long. And on a human level, 
the one thing that I've learned through this whole thing is that I need to talk to people. I need to engage. I need to ask how people are. You know, house music was built on this foundation. And I think a lot of people have forgotten this. Yeah, man. Um, Sasha, you've been very public with your thoughts, of course. Um, can you tell me how you see things right now? I mean, there's there's a there's a lot going on, even down to like you know the the tears being announced um, in the last couple of days. Um, how do you see everything right now in in regard to the electronic music industry itself? Well, I think we've been absolutely shafted. You know, everybody's talking UK at the moment about tier three, tier two, one percent in in tier one, but you know. Where, where are we? we you know, the nightclubs were the first to close. We will be the last ones to reopen. Live music venues, arenas, you know, there's theatres, they're all still completely shut. The conversation has moved on from that. And, you know, I would absolutely agree with what Maria just said then. It felt to me when we went into the first lockdown that the vast majority of the industry, artists, agents, managers, felt that this would last maybe a few months. And it was only when they realised, hang on, we're in this for the long term, that they actually stepped forward. And I think it's really disappointed. And, and, you know, we all in the industry know who's been vocal throughout this. And I think when we come through this, which we will come through this, I think those people will be respected. And again, Maria's quite right. There's a whole ecology around um, what we do. Mm. Um, you know, and you mentioned my role as, as nighttime economy advisor, but also yeah. the co-founder of Warehouse Projects and Park Life. So I can tell you that when Warehouse Projects on for those three months, we bring £17 million into the local economy. Um, that's by way of taxis, hotels, new outfits, meals. And again, when Park Life's on that weekend, just those two days, it brings £15 million into the local economy. So we do our bit. And this government does not recognise this. They do not understand this. And Michael, who you're going to hear from in a minute, he knows that I had a one-to-one -one conversation with someone in the, in the cabinet that's very high up, well-respected. And we were talking about nightclubs. And he was delighted to tell me that he was in a nightclub last year. And when I challenged him and asked him which nightclub that was, only in a friendly way, he told me it was Annabelle's in London. And I think that just sums up. You know, Warehouse Project, 10,000 kids, shoulder to shoulder, dancing to Maria's axe, you know, sweat dripping off the wall. And he thinks a nightclub is where you stick a fancy sparkler into a bottle of bloody Grey Goose and order it from your table. They don't understand what we do. And, you know, I think there's a bigger, there's a whole bigger picture here for me. You know, we, we've seen, um, I, and again, defected, amazing, you know, hats off. And I saw Simon this morning on Sky, and I agree totally with Simon. You know, we've seen some great experiments that people had to try and do with mm. socially distant nightclubs, but they do not work. They simply do not work. You have to get back to 100% capacity to create the energy on the dance floor because the energy yeah. on the dance floor is probably more important than actually is what's happening on stage it's the customer that creates the environment. Um, so, you know, the warehouse project, we're not going to go back until we can operate 100%. But I am very, very confident we will be back next year. Uh, extremely confident about that. Um, but no, we've been thrown under a bus. And there have been some quite good things, like the Cultural Relief Fund. Um, and, you know, warehouse project did get some of that. But whoever was sat down dishing some of that out, I mean, we all saw the results. 
like scratching your head, companies that hadn't operated for three years getting £200,000. Yeah. I mean, come on. And then the government turn around as well and say, we're giving you this money. Well, actually, you're not. You're giving us back our money that we've been yep. paying corporation tax and VAT and VAYE and then yep. all these years. Um, so it's not your money. You're not doing us a favour. You're giving us the money that we deserve. Um, so I think the sad thing is this. I think when we do reopen, unfortunately, we are going to see many, many closures. You know, furlough has been a good thing. And if you asked me in January what furlough was, I couldn't have told you. It's a new thing to me. Um, I didn't know what the definition was. But there have been some good things. But sadly, we're going to see many, many nightclubs never reopen. That, that is it. You know, we, we cannot sugarcoat that. That's coming down the line. Um, and big, big operators as well. I'm not talking about just the small independents. Many small independents, they are not going to reopen, but the big boys as well are not going to reopen. I think that the good news is because our industry is so resilient and because we are so creative together um, and because we have an entrepreneurial spirit, that the bounce back will be absolutely phenomenal. I know next year when we can reopen, can you imagine the first time you walk into a nightclub? The first <laughs> time you can properly stand shoulder to shoulder with your mates. Yeah, man. There are going to be tears that night. So, um, big you know, big, yeah. And I, I, I'm talking to festival promoters who are on sale at the moment, likes of Leeds, Reading, Creamfields, Download. They're seeing phenomenal ticket sales at the moment, record ticket sales. And to me, that shows the appetite is there. People are ready to come back. Um, and they will. So 20's been a crap year. 21's fight back. And on that tip, uh, moving over to Michael, um, you've obviously been right at the centre of a lot of the stuff that's been going on with regard to our industry. Um, can you tell us about your efforts to galvanise and sort of unify, bring people together and... Um, you know, has there been much uniformity and or consistency in the approach? Do you think? I, I think to start with, just to give you a real sort of clear picture, if you can ask me about industry, I completely uh, reinforce exactly what Maria and Sasha are saying mm. about um, some shocks in terms of people not stepping up. But in the same respect, I've actually seen uh, quite a broad sense of community at ground level. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen some amazing work by individuals. I've, been, I've seen, uh, you know, I think in the early stages, I actually spoke to people who run conferences, CEOs of conferences that were running food round for some of the elderly. So I, I think some of the biggest things that can come from this and, and whatever positives you can take, I think it's actually brought a lot of our industry together mm -hmm. uh, in terms of community. It's taken a while. I'm not, I'm not sat here saying that it's been an overnight process. Like, like everyone said on here, it, it was almost like the, five stages of grief there was a disbelief for the first three months everyone thought it was a third world sort of uh, thing that would never hit us you know it wouldn't happen three months we'll be back to normal you know another month on from there and everyone and, and everyone just they just didn't believe it and this was from December last year watching it from a distance so uh, it's been hugely frustrating but like you say if I'm going to take anything from it community has been you know our, our community has come together um, it's taken a while but we've you know we've really resonated and, and it's been a real one-to-one -one. I know Sasha and Maria and, and pretty much everyone on this call have have been so active and so engaged in speaking to individuals, probably individuals that they wouldn't have spoke to at the, the levels and times that, that this mm -hmm. is presented. Um, if you're going to ask me government, 
no, they've been shocking. Uh, they've been very convoluted. If, if I gave you some insight into the meetings at the early stages of government interaction, and Sasha will reinforce this, but, um, you know, it's a left-hand, right-hand thing. Um, you know, we're, we're run between businesses that operate nightclubs, which are represented by Bays and Culture, in terms of electronic music that are represented by DCMS. Both departments don't talk to each other. They're competitive. Uh, it's run by a cabinet of about five people that, uh, you know, don't share anything till the last minute. And if I'm going to be honest, some of those departments don't hear about the information until the times we do or the press release it. And, you know, I hope Sasha will reinforce that in, in the way that some of this, this sort of uh, press leaks happen. Um, I think the, the challenge that we've always had, and initially, um, because of the short-term view on how this, this was going to happen, we were always sat going, well, it's going to go soon, we'll be reopened, we'll be back to normal. So it took a while for people to understand the importance of actually galvanizing, coming together and, and, and approaching this with, the, with uh, the same sort of fervor. And uh, myself, Sasha, and some, you know, some other associations actually realized that coming together, we were a stronger voice and that disparate sort of position that everyone undertook. And, and I think one of the challenges that we did have, without a doubt, was this proprietary positioning. People always wanted to sort of create or, or deliver the solution almost. But as it's, the solution got further away or the opportunity to come out of this got further away, the importance of coming together and standing as one um, became vital for us to move forward. Um, some of the key things that we've understood is, you know, we've, we've seen lots of people emotionally setting up splinter groups and challenging and having the wrong messaging. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been a, it's a really sort of been a challenging environment, particularly mm. politicians that don't understand what our sector is about. Um, and I, I'm, I'm about to trump Sasha's uh, sort of story there, although I think that one's an amazing one. Uh, I uh, had the experience of speaking um, to a senior cabinet minister uh, when I asked him when we were doing the Let Us Dance campaign some time ago. Uh, and, uh, and I said to him, I said, what about dance music or electronic music? And his view was, as far as he concerned, that uh, dance troops um, and music recitals could still take place. <laughs> his understanding of electronic music was like, I, I don't know what room he was in uh, or what radio station he was listening to, but he, he, he's so far removed. And bear in mind, and I'll give you an impetus, this is someone who heads up the Department for Culture. So when you get that sort of feel from, from what's going on within one of the government departments, it's frightening. One of the biggest things I think that we've got off the back of this is the fact that the likes of electronic music, um, uh, the, the huge, huge business and industry that it is, is somewhat underrepresented at government level. Yeah. It's value, it's export value, um, it's value in terms of its talent, uh, it's value in terms of education, it's value in terms of communities and representing lower income families as is just absolutely undermined in terms of uh, the, the, the sector and its representation within government. Um, we've been working hard on it. I know some people on this call have been coming together with us to work hard on that. And it's definitely a focus that we've got to take into account for next year. We can't sit and allow ourselves to be sort of hidden in the shadows without that, where we're, we're such a huge part of 
the the British culture uh, uh, and the tapestry of the UK. So, you know, some of our big things is is about value and recognition. It's about uh, you know infrastructure and support. You know, our big focus at the moment is let's get through this, let's get open, and let's start to regenerate both culturally and economically by investing in the infrastructure around talent, the infrastructure around some of the uh, the, the workers, the production, the 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 engineers that have missed out. But we need to get to that that, that place at pace. And, and just to finish off, I mean, one of the big challenges, I mean, we had a big meeting yesterday with uh, one of the ministers uh, on the task force for nightclubs and venues. Um, uh, and it was quite an emotional meeting because on that call, we had some people, you know, people that have 80 million pound uh, sort of nightclub businesses in the UK that are weeks away from going bust. Um, and, and we're arguing hard and submitting, you know, solutions, but it's almost like a craziness. And, and what I feel at the moment quite heartfelt is the shit bit about this is it feels like the government are doing some of this with intent. Yeah. Um, uh, and, it, and it feels like there is a, an absolute reason behind them squeezing this, this position in terms of late night electronic music and everything that it represents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's something that, without a doubt, I feel needs to be uh, represented in, in all forms, whether it's a consumer, whether it's you know, someone attending these events, whether it's an industry. And us coming together is going to make such a difference next year. And we need to focus on that to make sure that we get through and we come back, you know, 10 times stronger than we did before. Uh, and we have lots of ways of future proofing. So I'm excited about the future. Our resilience, as Sasha said, is, is amazing. Uh, our entrepreneurial spirit, our, our, our skill sets behind the scenes are absolutely off the charts. Let's not lose sight of that and focus that into 2021. Yeah, I definitely feel you on that intent point there. I was um, just over the last few months, some of the stuff that they've been saying and the way they've been acting has kind of reminded me that governments never cared about rave culture, man. When have they ever really like given a shit? They never have. So like now they've got the perfect excuse to squeeze us. They're making the bloody most of it, aren't they? <laughs> Interesting <laughs> enough. That's how it feels. <laughs> just being in '89 was also a conservative government. Mm which gives you a clear understanding of that, that disparity, that mis- this misconceptions that I, I meet MPs and ministers week in, week out. The same thing is, is nightclubs can't go near it. Don't understand it. Events, electronic music, don't understand it. You know, start understanding it because it's going to take over and become a huge part of something you need to get to grips with. So big message. Yeah, man. So Wicked. Thanks, Michael. Just before you jump onto Ella and Dan, just to evidence, and Mike knows it because I've shared the letter with him, to evidence how the government's right hand doesn't know what the left's doing. Um, I was challenging the, the 10pm curfew. And uh, the same day last week, I think, was it Wednesday, when Boris, Wednesday or Thursday, when, when Boris said, the 10pm curfew, we've realised we've made a mistake, so we're going to allow drinking up time out at 11 o'clock. I think that was at five o'clock. At 5.39, I got a letter from the legal department, a seven-page letter explaining fully why he would never extend the 10 p.m. curfew. I mean, they haven't a clue what they're doing. Oh, man. It's like, it's like they haven't got a clue what they're doing, but they also have because there's certain actions that are just like clearly they know what they're doing. You know what I mean? But, you know, when, when it comes to departments not being able to be communicating with each other, it's just, it just seems to be ridiculous, man. I just can't get over that. Um, Dan. Um, 
I just think there's absolutely oh, sorry. Saying and just saying, I think what government don't understand is that rave culture, dance music, nightlife will always exist and it will always materialize in if they're not if they don't acknowledge that it will come up in different areas we're seeing a massive resurgence in illegal raves and things like that so surely that's a massive oversight from their point of view they're not really acknowledging that this it's it's not going to not ever happen if and if they don't embark on it and support (coughs) in different areas which which will arguably be less safe so yeah yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. There's just been there's been so many illegal raves. Like I, I've got a few mates that are kind of like that sort of operate in that area, and they just said there's just been so many going on in the last month or so. I think there's been a lot of um, crackdowns, but um, over the summer it was like crazy. There's so much stuff going on. Um, Dan, so YouTube um, are obviously a platform that's sort of predicated on accessibility for all. Just wanted to know if there are any sort of um, glimmers in the darkness in terms of like, you know, virtual events, hybrid ticketing, and using the platform for the, to aid discovery where we can't generate footfall? Yeah, I, I do. And it's, you know, it's heartbreaking to hear all of these stories. And I think, you know, for the music business, there are different components of it. And I think the, the streaming ecosystem for labels has been fairly robust. But I think on the live side, you know, it's been decimated. Um, and that's going to infect lots of different parts of the community, as Sasha and Maria and, and Michael have said. Um, I think from our point of view, uh, there was a lot more f- focus on digital platforms at the beginning of the pandemic. Obviously, there was a big initiative to keep isolated people entertained um, at home. So we really focused on the mm. stay-at-home um, um, initiative. And I think through that, there's been a lot of amazing creativity. Um, I think for a platform like YouTube, where there's 2 billion um, monthly average users, about a billion of those are activating music. Um, There's a huge global audience to tap into. And I think, you know, what we've seen from the likes of uh, you guys are defected with the virtual festival. That was a brilliant example of that. And I think, you know, we've seen a lot of great stuff from the the dance scene generally, whether it be um, festival brands or, or DJs. And I think, you know, it's allowed you know, some of these artists to kind of humanize themselves and, and, and move themselves closer to their fan base, which I think is great. Um, you know, some of this has now moved on into monetization. Um, for ourselves, we have um, what we call kind of twin engines. So we have the, the AVOD and advertising side, and then we have the streaming video on demand. Um, there's been a move into kind of pay-per-view, which we don't have activated on our platform at the moment, but uh, that's certainly been discussed a lot um, and we expect kind of movement in the next 12 months. So, you know, I think, I think yes, I think people have been forced to adopt technology quicker. We've seen mm. a huge amount of growth in the living room and I think that will create other opportunities. Does that replace, you know, standing in the warehouse project, uh, sort of sweating with your mates, having the time of your life? Absolutely not. But I think we're seeing some encouraging kind of, um, you know, opportunities for the future, which I think when live does return, because it absolutely will, can sit alongside. And I think there's a whole, you know, kind of virtual uh, kind of engagement and an alternate monetization opportunity, which can can sit alongside the business. Nice one. Um, Ella, you, you work with a lot of um, events clients. How have they been coping through all of this? Have you seen much innovation? And, you know, is it quite a fertile time for creative ideas, do you feel? It's been really mixed if I'm honest it's been yeah yeah, there's been 
So I cast my mind back to first lockdown. Obviously, we were navigating, making sure that everyone was successfully or um, being able to kind of cancel their events, communicate to their audiences. And then many of those have sat back in the knowledge that they aren't able to do anything until 2021. Um, They are all now moving forward to next year, um, specifically within the festival landscape and planning and all systems go with real confidence that that will return, which is brilliant. And the season predictions are it will return May, June time, which would obviously be incredible and really, really needed because another year out for festivals is just not, it's not viable. It just won't happen. The supply chain will completely break down. So there's those who have sat back and just waited. But then also we've seen real innovation. We've seen um, people, operators going into a completely new sector for themselves. So we work with main stage festivals who are behind Snowbox and Carla and they were very, very quick off the mark and launched their driving cinema experiences, had 60,000 people over the summer and, you know, re- you know, really kind of were the first to be able to deliver that driving, ex- um, driving cinema experience and had the media coverage and support and profile was, you know, phenomenal, it was absolutely massive. So major, major develops in completely new areas of their own field. Naturally, they will always be festival promoters. That's what they will always do. They will always return to that. It's what they love, but they wanted to innovate in the time and do um, activate during the summer. Um, We've also seen, I mean, Defective, we've all mentioned it, you know, their ability to move very, very quickly and bring their virtual festival experiences literally within within week one of lockdown. Mm. Of course, of since March, they've had audiences of over 80 million. So it's absolutely ginormous. They've raised loads of money in donations. They've supported their DJs, their talent, their artists. So it's really great to see how they were able to do that so quickly and they're continuing to innovate in that sector. So it's a really brilliant example. And the venues as well. So obviously it's been really, really difficult for uh, nightclubs, but um, it's been interesting to see how places like the Grand, who are a South London venue, and mm. got a massive history, 120 years they've been going, and they have operated in multiple different fields over the course of that 120 years, and they've been fighting really hard to be able to, to actually open their doors. So they were the first government kind of pilot event within uh, after lockdown number one. So they're, But they're also programming people like Bugged Out coming in and programming film nights. It's just interesting to see how they're trying to bring the culture to life through different mediums that is available. But let's all be honest, what we need is we need our venues to reopen. We need the government to support those venues in reopening. We need nightlife. It's the space where, you know, yes, loads of, lots and lots of music is being created right now, but if there's not a space to, for people mm. to then go and experience it then we're in a really sorry state of affairs like it's a space where people can be free escape be individuals you know find their friend like new friends it's just such an important part of our culture and our society and it has been fully ignored and I think I agree with everyone in the sense that the reason why that is is just a, a complete lack of knowledge and understanding from the government about why it's so important they just haven't got a clue yeah, we need more ravers in government, man. <laughs> um, 
there's an open question that um, that's been suggested, but I've I've got one myself, which is um, where 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 do we start? Like creating this pathway back to, to 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 things reopening again, because there's there's a lot of stuff that's kind of being suggested. You know, people some people are like think the silver bullet is going to be the the vaccine. Some people are saying, you know, like carrying on doing like socially distanced events is like one way back in, but I just wanted to leave it to the floor, but like, uh, does anyone have any ideas of, of, as to how like things might really sort of start to get back to, so Michael, you're smiling. And uh, Well, a start date would be nice, wouldn't it? You know, that we can work backwards from, but I don't think anybody knows. I mean, the reality mm. is, is we're all kind of, I mean, agents are probably thinking maybe we'll get something in June. So, Hopefully Glastonbury runs, because that will be the benchmark, you know. I mean, yeah, the vaccine's going to help, isn't it? And rapid testing would be amazing initially, I suppose. But, I mean, like, there's going to be nothing before April, is there? I, I think... Yeah, the, I mean, May. Sorry, Michael. You speak. No, 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 no. I think, I think the challenge is, is you've got this vaccine that's due to be out about second week of December. Um, critical, well... Uh, they're, they're talking about critical mass uh, in terms of vaccination by July in terms of Pfizer. There is an intimation that uh, end of March, new fiscal calendar start, that there is going to be progression in terms of the uh, social distancing position. Um, but the, the way that this needs to be managed and the discussions that are happening at the moment is a rapid testing um, and without going into it, there's two tests, lateral flow test and there's the protein spike test, which are two different tests are being look at, looked at. Liverpool's test is the lateral flow test, which is obviously the mass testing. Um, but there are challenges in terms of nightclubs um, on how that works in terms of ingress and egress. So without going into the detail, the biggest problem we've got is Public Health England, Public Health Scotland, Public Health Wales, all keen to see a metric or an opportunity but if you base it down onto three levels one is is it safe which is the hardest bit to get past in terms of public health england because they one don't understand what a venue looks like or a nightclub looks like um, and we did attempt to get the head of global pandemic to walk around to heaven and different venues so that they could understand what it looks like so uh it's not a cocktail bar from the West End or anything like that. It's just a very different environment. Um, uh, so we tried to do that. And we're still pushing to get that done. Um, but the challenge is, is, is obviously getting them to understand how this can be managed and how professional our, our businesses are, you know, uh, and the fact that you know, we can do it. Rapid testing is an opportunity. Uh, ingress is key. Uh, there are some challenges around timing. So there's some challenges around... Uh, gestation period there's some challenges around symptom uh, you know symptoms uh, asymptomatic etc uh, but all of them have been qualified against these tests at the moment what we need is public health and cabinet to be confident that we can deliver and that's the big thing that everyone's working on whether you're an outdoor event you're an indoor event you're working with uh, festivals and satural uh, you know similarly will probably reinforce this there's loads of different discussions happens on different platforms the worst bit about it these are all happening in silos. <laughs> um, so lots of discussions happen from different, you know, whether you're theatre, if they actually gathered people together. I mean, I had a meeting with uh, Scottish government uh, two weeks ago um, and they turned around and they said, can you get Westminster and Wales to come and sit down with us and we can all talk about how nightclubs and venues open. And 
we're in the process of doing it, but it's just not an overnight process. And the longer time goes on, they don't understand pace. That's the thing. And we're urgent and we're driving and they're, yeah, no, we've got policies to release and guidelines. Tell you what, spend a load of time, just put money behind getting these open and you might actually get to a point where you can do some sort of bridging finance to keep these businesses alive and get them open at a reasonable time so that we can actually survive. And when they're open, they can then fulfill you know, some of the financial requirements for people who rely or, or run symbiotically as a business alongside them. Um, but getting this across is very difficult. And, and we're working ferociously in the background alongside a lot of people trying to get this across the line. But our aim is to get some, pilot to, uh, some pilots in for January uh, and then drive towards, uh, you know, getting more and more done as we move forward. But we need to have the confidence of government and we need to have PHE sign off, which is the challenge. And I just say we're having this problem all across Europe as well. I mean, we all think this is just a UK problem, but the reality is, is that we're in the same boat in most countries across Europe, which then you can see the dramatic effect it's happening on artists' touring schedules and what that means. It's like we don't know when we can go to France. We don't know when Germany's going to be working properly again. We we have no idea what festivals are going to run. You know, we're you know, I'm sort of saying July, but you know, that's my kind of crystal ball moment coming in there. But the reality is, is that everyone's in a second wave and all the governments are pretty much fumbling their way through this exactly the same way as we are in the UK. Uh, I think, I, I just, just to spoke so much, just to add yeah. to that and to go, not go off on a tangent, but I think we can open it up a bit more. They don't just not understand electronic music or nightclubs. They don't understand hospitality full stop. So at the moment, at Greater Manchester, clearly we're sat on the naughty step, as we all know, um, you know, and, and they're just pointing at us and, and calling us names and bullying us at every single opportunity. However, next week, I can walk into my supermarket, I can watch people picking up cans of produce, looking at sell-by dates, putting them back down again, walk around, go to the Trafford Centre, walk in and out of shops, I can go for, to the hairdressers, to the barbers. They can like go through my hair and stuff and have a haircut, but can't walk into the pub where there's a one-way system where you walk in, you've got track and trace, you sit down, you order by QR code, you've got hand sanitizer there, it's cleaned every hour, and then you leave by one-way system. It's just it's absolutely ridiculous. It really is. And I think, you know, the rave scene as well, to, to, to the cabinet, we're just... We're just cast off people. And it's exactly the same as the wet lead pubs that I've been talking about this morning in Greater Manchester. You know, when eventually we get into tier two and we're off that naughty step, I can go for a, a lunch or I can go for dinner uh, with my, my partner and I can see social activity in that area and I can buy drinks and things and have fun. But actually, those wet lead pubs, the community pubs that are in our most deprived areas where the lowest paid live, you know, they cannot see any form of social activity because they have to stay shut. That's not right. That is not fair. You know, how is it that one class can, you know, can enjoy social activity and, and the poorest class can't? You know, I have a, a massive issue with that. And a landlady I was speaking to on Wednesday, she was she pulls out, you know, a, a relatively small wage weekly, about, about £200. But to her, the pub means a lot more. Mm -hmm. and it's where older people go who've been married all their lives. They've potentially lost their partner. 
they're lonely and they will buy a pint and sit in that pub for two, two and a half hours with one pint, but they will talk to their friends social distance. And, you know, there's, there's a much bigger picture. And I think when we do come out of this and we're all talking positively about next summer, which I also agree with, that will be the time where we can dissect this. And there's going to be some massive questions they've got to answer that they cannot answer. Big time. Big time, it's man. Just, just to feed, yeah, and, I, and I'm completely with Sasha on that. And, and it's it's an interesting one. I mean, we we I was listening to a radio show the other day with the lady who runs Excluded. Um, and, and she was saying in the last couple of weeks, 64 deaths through suicides because people are finding it so tough out there. They're, they're you know... They're, these people who've been completely excluded, they're on nominal sort of money that's hardly, you know, able to feed their families or get them by. To, you know, one of the things that we've been pushing plight-wise is think about the human element here. You know, think about, we're talking about real people. This is, you know, let's not focus on business. Let's focus on people. And that reinforces the fact that European countries, particularly the likes of Germany, um, you know, for, for some of our businesses in particular, I mean, they're, they're adopting a position where they've extended furlough until the end of 2021, and they're giving them somewhat, you know, up to 70% of lost revenue. You know, we're, we're struggling to get, I mean, since, since March, nightclubs, venues, festivals, events, apart from the CRF fund, which was very limited distribution, have had nothing. They've been outside the rateable value uh, side of things. Um, you know, way over 51K in terms of access to grants and issue. They've had to take big loans. Commercial rents are on top of them. And, you know, they're all in such precarious positions. I mean, we're talking, I mean, we've just done a survey. 75.6% of businesses are going to go bust in the nighttime economy by the end of this year is is the feedback that we've got of, of wow. you know, 700 businesses. Wow. So from our perspective, we're in a dire position and we can't, you know, we, we, we were so strong in a meeting yesterday, most frustrating meeting I have ever been in since I started this. And trust me, there's been some real shockers. But yesterday was, you know, a penultimate position where I, I don't know if it wasn't virtual, it would have ended up in a bit of a mall. I'm going to be honest wow. with you. That's how vicious <laughs> it was. And I, wow. I'd have welcomed it and I'd have probably like, uh, you know, the, the typical school fight going, listen, you deserve this. Everything you've given our industry, you deserve it. You need to step up. This whole thing is just clearly uh, an understanding. You don't understand us. Huge misconceptions. You don't want to understand us. You don't want to protect us. You undervalue us. You don't understand the impact on our community. Sasha's quite right. You know, the, the pubs of today are the cornerstones of communities. Let's not lose sight of it. You know, the, the nightclubs are cornerstones of youth culture communities. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's 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 work on those premises and, and and push hard to get this out. But we do need, you know, we need public to understand it and, and we need industry to back it. And if we can get that, then trust me, you know, the notion will change, the narrative will change. The one thing I'd say to you, when was the last time electronic music or nightclubs mentioned in any speech around a narrative from government? <laughs> because they're scared to bring it up because they couldn't describe what it is or what it's meant, you know, what it's about. And and that's a scary notion for us. Yeah, man. It is. It is. It really is. They just, yeah, as I said before, they, they, they just, there's just, a, there's such a disconnect there. And that, that's, that's clear from, from what you, you and Sasha are saying in particular, but we, we can all see it, even though we're not as close, closely connected as you, as you guys are. It's just, it's just obvious, isn't it? Do you know um, what my worries, Marcus, is when we come out of this, you know, there are people with deep pockets that always do well out of mm. travesty. And my fear 
you know, I'm, I'm confident every single one of us on this call here would rather support the independents as opposed to the chains. And my fear is in three to four years, we're walking around and every corner has got a Costa and every corner has got some Weatherspoons. And I can see that happening. Yeah, man. Yeah, you're right. You're With right. no music. <laughs> Even worse. <laughs> oh, as if, Sorry. As if it wasn't dystopian enough. In it wasn't already, it dystopian man. enough. The sheer silence, <laughs> apart, apart from slurping in corners. I mean, what, what, um, Dan, what, so um, do you see any hope in this? You've gone from um, working at a major label to working at YouTube. Um, you know, if, if there is any hope, um, where might it be on on the sort of industry side of things? You know, on more, I guess more on the sort of like um, recorded uh, music side of things, man. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I do see hope. Um, as I said, I think we're seeing continued growth of an adoption of uh, audio and audio visual streaming, which will continue. Um, I think from our perspective on YouTube, I think we can continue to help the industry, um, you know, kind of realize these moments and connect with fans during the pandemic. Um, we've opened up lots of different revenue streams. Um, and different products on the platform to help monetize uh, live, and I think you know that will be essential as 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 obviously fans um, you know can't sort of go to gigs, um, and we'll continue that push. And I think we will see you know there's there's been developments on the pay per view side which we'll see continue. Um, you know what we what we're really focused on as well. You mentioned the pandemic, but obviously there's been a huge amount of social unrest in the world this year. So we're going to be focusing heavily on uh, more, bringing more diversity to the platform. We've launched a, um, a black creator fund at YouTube um, to bring about more tentpole events and artist grants. And I think Maria was talking about, you know, developing talent and the mid layer of talent and how they will suffer. And I, you know, I completely agree with that. And I think we have to be very conscious of supporting, you know, the independent part of the business and developing artists because, you know they are the they are the lifeblood of the industry, and I think they are they are most at risk. So, you know, we're focusing heavily on the the sort of underrepresented communities. You know how we can shine a light on them and how we can connect the artists in the industry to the vast um, user base we have um, we have on YouTube. So yeah, I, I do I do see positivity through a very tough time. Brilliant, glad to hear it, man. Um, just to wrap up, uh, I've got a, I've got a couple of questions that I'd like each of you to, to answer for me. Um, what would be your wishes for the year ahead, and how are you going to attack the, the new year in front of us? And Ella, I'd start with you. Wishes for the year ahead. So we actually do like a summit every year, and we got together with our team, and we talk about our goals and our ambitions for for 2021 next year and the one thing that stuck out for me was the fact that I need to see or I really want to see and be in a space in a festival in a club surrounded by thousands of people hundreds of people whoever and seeing how that spirit that um, community all of those things are brought to life um, in that moment and for me I you know, I feel really positive that we will get there and I feel really optimistic we will get there. I think what's lacking is a clear roadmap is, and there needs to be some real changes with that roadmap to make sure that's possible and that needs to come from the government and that needs to come from better understanding, better education and then actual action from that. 
Mm. But I am taking a an eternal optimistic approach. I think there is going to be a need to be incredibly agile. I don't think we're going to get that roadmap in the same way that in what is needed. And I think that's going to be really, really difficult for operators. There will be some people, projects, events that can create and build and do projects within space of a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Whereas there's others that need a few months, quite a few months lead time into it. So I think we may see, you know, quite a lot of change in terms of there may be a bit more of an increase in smaller events. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more um, localized. I'm really excited to see what the localized scene is going to be and how that is going to spur not only music, but also venues. And I, I really hope that people support their local venues when it is able to open. You know, we've seen a dramatic decrease in like closure of venues pre-COVID. So we need to make sure yeah. that venues are supported and audiences go to them and they are supporting that from a local level. And I hope that this you know what's going on right now will actually help that in some way so some sort of a bit, a bit of a gift in all of the things that are going on um I would like to see and I'm interested to see kind of more there's been a lot of collaboration a lot of people working together and I, it would be interesting to see how that can continue and I'd also like to see how sustainability is once we are able to reopen and once we mm. are able to operate again I would like to see sustainability as being top of that agenda for that and that has to also come from support from the government to be able to support that from a supply chain and all those other things because I think we you know we need to all consider that as a big part of what we're, we're doing in the future and I think um, it needs to absolutely be supported by the government to be able to do that and they've demonstrated that they have funds there and they found funds for other the things that are prior to them so this needs to be a priority for them as well. Maria? <clears throat> what am I hoping for? What, what are my aspirations? I can't wait to get it all moving again and we're having like full summers and we've got full crews touring and the bus companies are working again and I'm breaking talent and it's just the summer's running and, you know, I, I really see a resurgence in uh, local uh, clubs again if there's still enough of them left. I think cheap ticket prices building up young talent that don't necessarily or are unable to travel could be amazing for our scene. I mean, off the back of the rave scene, it was off the back of a massive recession. We saw, you know, an amazing time in this country for electronic music and that desire to be together in fields raving. Um, I think I absolutely agree with Ellie in the sense of COVID should not be as an, used as an excuse to go backwards with all the amazing changes we were making in terms of eco-credentials or all the strives towards diversity and you know gender parity at companies. We shouldn't be cost-cutting and, and making all those changes go backwards. We need to keep going with those innovative things that have been going on that well needed to happen you know, across all organisations in the music business. And I, I, I'm already hearing cost cutting coming up as a way, you know, we're going to have plastic again at festivals. And mm. that we really need to be mindful that we actually, at one point last year, before all this madness, we were almost plastic free in lots of cases. It was a real thing. And I think these things, I know people need to save money, but we really need to move forward in a in a positive way really look at these things and where possible keep up with the good work that we're all doing 
And I can't wait to see you all soon in a party or a party. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Uh, Dan? Um, I... I think I talked a lot about the new revenue streams. I think we, you know, we want to help the industry. We want to be the number one partner. Our longer-term ambition is to be the number one revenue generator for the industry. So, you know, to help all different parts of the business um, and diverse creators build new businesses um, on YouTube is our is our is our wish. And we're, you know, I think lean in. You know, there's a huge audience there. We have lots of amazing products launching. I think we sit nicely alongside. Um, physical parts of the business um, and you know let's let's do some cool stuff together brilliant Michael oh you caught me off there I, I <laughs> you're gonna go to Sasha but the uh, so uh, look I, I think the biggest thing that I've got from this is and I don't want to lose uh, post uh, somewhat where it's going normality wise is that sense of community that sense that people have come together they've worked together they they brought down some barriers and they've actually started being collaborative rather than, you know, constantly being competitive and combative, et cetera. So I don't want to lose sight of that. I want to make sure that that stays. That's a future-proof moment for us. Infrastructure is key. Understanding how this has affected us and putting an infrastructure in place is going to support talent, support businesses. Uh, and that comes with, you know, the future-proofing of revenue streams, uh, looking at obviously the virtual opportunity, the monetization, um, and how we can develop physical experiences and also the physical entities that house them. Um, so I think it's really important. Um, I think even more importantly, it's about us getting representation, not only in government on a national level, but on a local level. The fact of the matter is, is when we looked into it, I think the average age of a councillor is something like 65. So, you know, we're asking people who are ill-informed to make decisions about nightlife and nighttime economy, and they have no understanding of being led by many times by the police. And the police are very risk averse. So we're sat in a position where there's no understanding in terms of cultural diversity, music genre, all of these things that are vitally important for communities that need to be addressed. So equality and diversity, whether it be gender, race, accessibility, all key things that we need to really strive hard to make sure are to front and center in terms of the agenda. Um, just going back to the future proofing side, we have got to work so hard to make sure that we have got enough revenue streams that if something like this happens again in one way, shape or form, we have an ability to survive uh, collectively, collaboratively, uh, and in a way that we can support each other, reinforced by the communities that are out there, whether it's just through communication or whether it's sharing those moments, those opportunities for the greater good of the scene. Uh, and the fact that uh, electronic music, hospitality, nightclubs, all of these key components are vital uh, for us to maintain our position as a globally renowned industry worth billions of pounds, um, which is just for some reason just doesn't echo in government. So my big thing is, is if you're going to earmark something, community is key. It's a route to everything working and us working collaboratively and us standing together to make sure that representation is strong. Sasha? Actually, I want to stop being angry for 21. Uh, from angry, <laughs> uh, um, you know, Park Life, I can tell you, is booked. Warehouse Project, we're proceeding. I think Maria is exactly right. You know, when, when the festivals come back, this should not be about just the headline artists. We've got to look after those up-and-coming artists. 
And Maria's going to kill me after this, but I will tell you, in the early 2000s, I had a nightclub called Sankey Soap, and Maria really stood by some of those up-and-coming artists, and we paid, I think it was 350 or £400 pounds for one of her artists now, and that was David. You can, you can name that. He knows that story. It's fine. Uh, so, yeah, it was David Getter. So that just shows yeah. we need to support people like that. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm just going to, because it's an electronic thing, I know there's only two minutes left, I'm going to share a story with you that I'm, I'm actually sat in my office. I'm working from home today. But you can debate this, but I, I am right. The most famous electronic music in the UK was the Hacienda. Uh, and that's where it all happened. That's where it all exploded. It is Maria. And the Hacienda <laughs> never made any money whatsoever. And every single time it was about to go bankrupt and the bailiffs were at the door, New Order had to bring a new track out, which they piled the money back in. And the last time it was about to go bankrupt, when he had no money in the bank account, this is how creative they were. Tony Wilson went out to get some branded Hacienda sellotape. Now, that is sums up our industry, doesn't it? That's the creative <laughs> we're dealing with. You are such a train spotter, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was brilliant, man. Thank, thank you so much. Thanks for that story. And thank, thanks to all of you for your contributions, man. It's been, a, it's been a really good chat. I wish we could go on for much longer because there's so much more I wanted to talk about. But um, that's been brilliant, man. And thanks, thanks to all of you for being so informative and positive as well, man. That's exactly what we need right now. Um, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Um, you can catch up with all of the panels on Defected.com or look out for pointers on Defected's Twitter account. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, and thanks to all the people on the roundtable.